0: Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah chapter 9. invite you to stand if you would. You won't stand long. And so this is from Isaiah chapter nine. I'm only going to read verses six and seven. This is out of Isaiah, writing some seven hundred years before the Advent event we are reflecting on uh, these weeks leading up to Christmas. Isaiah nine, beginning in verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'll give you a heads up on this. I'm going to meander in this message. I'm going to wander, roam, uh, kind of bounce around. It may seem disconnected because it probably is. There will be no points put up on the screen, sinful as that is, but there aren't going to be any points to read about on the screen. Today is really more of a meditation on God's gracious invasion into our world. The more I reflect on this season of Advent in the midst of the current cultural tensions and divisions, the more it seems to me we desperately need Advent. We need God to come and dwell in our midst. And I'm not sure how to get at all of the nuances and complexities of this in a three-point sermon, so this is a zero-point meditation. Nikos Kazantzakis was a Greek writer and a man who openly struggled with his Orthodox Christian faith, most famously uh, in his novel, The Last Temptation of Christ, from which the controversial movie was made back in 1988. He wrote a a kind of intellectual biography called Report to Greco, kind of his journey. And in it, he tells about a time when he was a young man and he went to visit a then famous monk and he describes the encounter This way, and I'm going to just use his words. He says, "...working up courage, I entered the cave and proceeded toward the voice. The ascetic was curled up on the ground. He had raised his head, and I was able in the half-light to make out his face as it gleamed in the depths of unutterable beatitude. I did not know what to say, where to begin. Finally, I gathered up courage. Do you still wrestle with the devil?" "'Father Makairas?' I asked him. "'Not any longer, my child. "'I have grown old now, and he has grown old with me. "'He doesn't have the strength. "'I wrestle with God.' "'With God!' I exclaimed in astonishment. "'And you hope to win? "'I hope to lose, my child. "'My bones remain with me still, and they continue to resist. "'Yours is a hard life, Father. "'I too want to be saved.' Is there no other way? More agreeable? Asked the ascetic, smiling compassionately. More human, Father. One. Only one. What is it? Ascent. To climb a series of steps. From the full stomach to hunger. From the slaked throat to thirst. From joy to suffering. God sits at the summit of hunger, thirst, and suffering. The devil sits at the summit of a comfortable life. Choose. I'm still young. The world is nice. I have time to choose. Reaching out with the five bones of his hand, the ascetic touched my knee and pushed me. Wake up, my child. Wake up before death wakes you up. Readings like this do something to me. They confront me, for sure. And in a really good way, they haunt me. Wake up, my child, before death wakes you up. What we are trying to do at O'Kills this Advent season is nudge each other awake. So we wake up to the wonder of God's coming. We wake up to Emmanuel, God with us every day, in the fast flow of our lives and wake up to the desperate need we have as individuals, as a church community, and as a culture to rediscover God, not God as an ideology to debate, but the living God who has come to be with us in Christ and who offers vital wisdom to live good and fruitful lives right now and forever. And I find myself increasingly fatigued, frustrated, and mostly saddened by the prevailing divisions, fractures, and off-the-charts anger on display in everyday life, virtually every day. It is visible at the micro level of heated interactions between loved ones or strangers over thoroughly insignificant things like dishes in the sink or parking spots. It is visible in the daily news where we read about unimaginable violence. It is audible and visible every single time a politician stands in front of a camera or a microphone. I read an article yesterday about the growing tensions in Iraq. And there were pictures of people gathered together and old men and old women and strong college kids and little children with their heads in their hands, weeping and grieving over the state of their nation. I've given many Advent sermons over my years as a pastor and many Christmas devotionals, and I cannot recall a time where I have felt a greater need for Advent because the nations of this world, including our own, desperately need a fresh visit from Almighty God to bring hope, and to begin to heal the divisions and the fractures and the anger. And I realize it sounds unrealistically optimistic to claim this Advent event can do anything to heal broken human souls or societies. I realize how preposterous that sounds. But the good news is Jesus graciously came to earth 2,000 years ago, and he continues to come today through his spirit, and he will one day come again to reign forevermore. So he is a God who advents, and we need a fresh encounter. We need to wake up to his presence with us right now in the midst of our everyday lives and experiences before death wakes us up. The devotional in Eugene Peterson's book that is the basis of this series we are in called Every Step on Arrival. The particular devotional we are using for today's message is entitled God's Gracious Way of Invading Our World. And that title stirs me as well. And this is key, I believe. The way God comes into our world reveals much about who God is. The way he comes into our world shows us what He is like. And the way He comes into our world shows us the way He will likely continue to come into our everyday lives and into our world. Christians believe God is the great architect and creator of the entire cosmos. He is, as we sometimes sing and say, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Grand and majestic and transcendent. So he could have arrived into the world grandly and majestically, like a king. Or, since he was, after all, God, he could have come like Neo did in the Matrix, just transport himself in somewhere to go do his thing, just get off a bus in Bethlehem to do his thing, full grown and ready to do his work. But when God finally decided to inhabit the world he created, he chose to come as a baby. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. I was sitting back here as the service began and progressed, and about three rows up there was a little baby, little baby girl, being held by uh, multiple people as the one held and finally... She got tired of being held by that one. The squirming started, so the handoff happened, and the other one had her settled for a moment. And I was thinking to myself, our God chose to come into the world as a baby. Watching Lily up here, who had grown weary of this candle lighting (laughs) festival. So she did what she wanted to do. She went exploring. When I couldn't help thinking, Our God chose to come into the world as a baby. It was a gracious invasion. He chose to be born with all the frailties and vulnerabilities of a baby. He chose to be born in a muddy manger. He chose to be born in a small town. And he chose to be born to an unwed teenager who was living from paycheck to paycheck and whose country was occupied by an oppressive world power. The way he chose to come into the world reveals much about who he is. Jesus came humbly into the world then to show us the humility of God. So waking up to the presence of God always goes hand in hand with humility with brokenness. John 1 and verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. His humility is part of His glory. This is our God, humble and dwelling with the humble, found, discovered, and rediscovered Amongst the humble. Building on this idea, Eugene Peterson describes Jesus' way of invading the world as, to use his words, most polite. Just a beautiful description. Jesus came politely into the world. He did not barge in and force his divinity upon us in a way that sent us into shock. God's invasion of the earth was not a divine D Day. And it certainly was not the pompous entrance of a tyrannical king forcing allegiance on those he had conquered. God invaded the earth by choosing to be born as a baby. And gradually, he grew up like we grow up. He endured the various human experiences that we endure. Perhaps so we could gradually adjust to God being with us and not go into shock. He was born as a baby and then we really don't hear much until he's about 30 years old. But I want us to think about this for a second. He lived those 30 years. Every hour and every day of them. He cried. He dirtied his diaper. He learned to crawl. He fidgeted in his mother and father's arms. He learned to stand, pull himself up. He learned to walk. He learned to say, Mama, at some point. He slept. And then every day he woke up, probably like Trixie, another day. He played with friends. He went to school. He studied. He slept. He ate. Occasionally, I'm sure, he barfed. And gradually, don't ask me why I threw that in, it just felt right. But he gradually came to realize, over this time, who he was and why he was here. Jesus was thoroughly human. God, as it says, in the flesh. Hebrews 2, verses 14, says he shared in our humanity. Verse 17 says, he was fully human in every way. So Jesus gets it. As we sit here today and perhaps things rattle in our mind about our own human experience, essentially what the New Testament's trying to say to us is, Jesus gets it. He gets the struggle to live soulfully in a fractured world. And I want to suggest he continues to come into our everyday lives in the same polite, gentle, and respectful way he did the first time. Waking up to God then means recognizing the gentle and polite ways He comes to us in everyday life. The gentle and polite ways He tries to get our attention and draw us to Himself. He gently taps our shoulder, we might say, instead of grabbing us by the scruff of the neck and screaming in our face. He woos. He beckons. He invites us to come and see who He is. He invites us to come and find out who we are. And He invites us to come and discover what life can be like with Him and in Him. He does not barge into our lives and force His way upon us. John 1 and verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not... Recognize him. It's an important word today. Recognize. The world did not recognize him and Jesus did not force the world to recognize him. The world did not recognize him and Jesus did not make the world recognize him. He let the world do what the world wanted to do and he lets us do what we want to do because he is polite and respectful, and gentle. And I must say, there is a beautiful grace in all of this that is quite contradictory to the militant and aggressive image of God portrayed by many these days who claim to be his followers. Waking up to God means recognizing where is he gently inviting us to draw near to him. And at the risk of being too prescriptive, and this is a real risk, and this may be deletable for the second service, we'll see. But at the risk of being too prescriptive, I want to suggest that in these fractured and angry times in which we are currently living, Jesus is inviting his people, his followers, to manifest his politeness and demonstrate his gentleness in the face of all the fracture and division and anger. A couple of days ago, Julie and I were riding in a lift in San Francisco, and within seconds of getting into the car, we realized the driver had no business being a lift driver in a hectic city like San Francisco. We hadn't gone two miles, and he had literally four outbursts of anger. You know how it is. Kind of the tire leak, Dah! kind of a thing. And someone pulls out and he erupts again. There were four of those in less than two miles. And not long after that, he bumped into the back of another car and our lift ride ended. (laughs) I thought a lot about this guy ever since it happened. One reason I thought about him is because he reminds me of a version of me. We were walking along after we got out of this car kind of astounded by this and I was telling Julie what I thought was going on with him, and she kind of looked at me like, you seem to know a lot of what was going on with him." And she said, does that remind you of you? Back in the day, I said, it sure does. I thought a lot about this guy, his culture of aggression. The kettle of anger heated all the way up within him, just boiling, ready to topple over. I've been thinking about this. What's the guy's story? Why the fury? Don't know the answer, but I know the answer isn't, well, the streets of San Francisco are really chaotic. That's not the reason. What tilted him toward anger at whatever point in his life? I would suggest he is a bit of a prototype of today's culture. Another anecdote. Three people I know have had a recent run-in with a man all four of us know. And in each instance, this man's anger has erupted over nothing. Let me say it this way. Silly things have become essential things in this man's soul. He's a prototype of today's culture. Silly things, meaningless things, become essential things. And I would suggest to you a new way is needed. A new ethic, what we sometimes around here refer to as a kingdom ethic. Gentleness in the face of such aggression. Christ followers become the advent of God in a fractured and divided and angry world when we demonstrate Jesus' way of politeness and gentleness and grace and respect in the face of aggression and tension and anger. Finally, God's gracious invasion into our world forever changes the way we see the world. God in a manger, born to a poor teenager and her carpenter fiancé. Ordinary people and circumstances forever changed after mixing with the divine. The famous English poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning physically suffered for much of her life. And she wrote a poem slash novel called Aurora Lay. And I love her language and her imagery in this poem. And I'm giving you a bit of a heads up here. I really love the struggle this kind of writing presents to us. The way it eludes our want of instantaneous understanding. And stretches our minds if we will allow it to. And makes our minds work if we will let them. So I'm going to read a lengthy portion of this poem and I would urge you to resist the urge to roll your eyes or tune out or check out or let that voice come in your head. I don't understand this kind of stuff. Fight that. the heck does she mean by that? Fight that. Here's the thing. We aren't going to understand all this. I don't understand all this. And I assure you, I will not read this the right way, the way it should be read, because I don't know how to. But there's gold in these hills if we're willing to climb up and dig for it. So let's climb and do a little digging. It's on the screen. If that helps you, you can follow along. Natural things and spiritual. Who separates those two in art, in morals, or the social drift, tears up the bond of nature and brings death, paints feudal pictures, writes unreal verse, leads vulgar days deals ignorantly with men is wrong in short at all points without the spiritual observe the natural is impossible no form no motion without sensuous spiritual is inappreciable no beauty or power and in this twofold sphere the twofold man holds firmly by the natural to reach the spiritual beyond it. Some call the ideal, better call the real, and certain to be called so presently when things shall have their names. The twofold manner, in and outwardly, and nothing in the world comes single to him, a mere itself. Cup, column, or candlestick, all patterns of what shall be in the mount, The whole temporal show related royally and built up to eternal significance through the open arms of God. There's nothing great nor small, has said a poet of our day, whose voice will ring beyond the curfew of Eve and not be thrown out by the matins bell. And truly, I reiterate, nothing's small. No lily-muffled hum of a summer bee, but finds some coupling with the spinning stars. No pebble at your foot, but proves a sphere. No chaffinch, but implies the cherubim. And glancing on my own thin, veined wrist, in such a little tremor of the blood, the whole strong clamor of a vehement soul doth utter itself distinct. Earth's crammed with heaven. And every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware, more and more from the first similitude. Earth is crammed with heaven. We live in a God bathed world. So he is present and he is acting in the ordinary events and experiences of our everyday lives. Do you believe this? As one writer put it, the finger of God always seen in the conspiracy of accidents that constitute ordinary life. It is the remarkable conviction that there is no such thing As secular reality. Because every common bush. Is a fire. With God. But only those who see. Take off their shoes. For only those who see. Know. The ordinary is holy ground. Because God is embedded. In the ordinary. One of the reasons for no points. Is this is not a message that needs points. And this is a message that almost insists upon experience. So I want to ask you to close your eyes if that helps you contemplate. If it doesn't, don't. Only those who see take off their shoes. For only those who know the ordinary is holy ground because God is embedded in the ordinary. Only those who see take off their shoes. You don't have to do this, but we're going to have a time to contemplate the wonder of God with us. And you might, if you like, want to take off your shoes. Holy ground. Because God is embedded in the ordinary holy ground because God is present when his people gather in his name. There's no such thing as secular reality because every common bush is afire with God. The Apostle Paul once told some smart people in Greece, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord Of heaven and earth he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else he is not far from any one of us for in him we live and move and have our being like water is to fish God is to us For in Him we live and move and have our being. Take the water away from the fish. Take God away from us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Like oxygen is to us right now. In this moment, God is to us. For he sustains everything by the power of his word. He himself, as Paul said, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For in him we live and move and have our being. Earth is crammed with heaven. He is not far from any one of us. survey the ordinary of your existence right now. Your life is crammed with the presence of God. Can you see Him? He is not far from you. Right now, can you see Him? ordinary of your life is crammed with God's presence and activity. Can you see Him? The finger of God is tapping and nudging in the midst of your everyday experiences. Can you feel Him? In him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. The ordinary is no longer ordinary, for it is mixed with the divine. Emmanuel, God with us. In him we live and we move and we have our being.